0: This is great to see you all today and to, to hear the energy, you know, the sign of mid, Midwesterners is, you know, there's nothing like a good, good winter storm to get us going, you know. So that's good to see. <laughs> uh, so we had a lively discussion last week. So a couple things before we get started. We had a lively discussion last week about the Holy Spirit. In view of John the Baptist and his ministry, and if there's time i 'll try to talk a little bit about that um, we so this handout we we began this handout last week, uh, but we we only got maybe to the bottom of page one so um, what i'm so that 's the first thing okay The second thing is starting next week i 'm going to transition topics just a little bit, so we 've been. Looking at kind of the icons of the faith, and now we're going to look at uh, early Christian devotion and mission, and how do we see the Christian life, uh, you know, in the scriptures and uh, in in the early Christians, and you know, we'll look at topics like that, like Christian life topics, which can be broad, which can be good, so. If you if you have a topic that is just one of these like burning topics you'd like to learn about let me know, and I'll try to fit that in between now and when we break for the summer. Okay, um, there's so much good to talk about. Like I'm gonna I'll talk a little bit about my my PhD dissertation topic on uh, talking to people outside the church in, in our world today. Uh, you know we we'll, we can talk about prayer and and holiness and faith and whatever else. So please let me know if there's something you'd really like to, to spend time on because I'd be glad to, to look at topics. Okay, so at the bottom of page one, so John the Baptist, just give you kind of a quick run through from last week. John the Baptist is that guy who was like the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He looks very much like a prophet, but then he is the entrance into the New Testament. And so he's out there in the desert, and we know the image, right? We know the icon, you know, wearing camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey. And he's, he's out there preaching repentance. And he's pointing to Jesus and he's saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he strikes us as a strong uh, man of confession, right? He has a strong confession of faith, a strong conviction, and then we know what happens to him. He gets arrested by Herod, and he's put into prison. And then is this very strange inquiry where and, and this is our text, Luke 7:18 to35 where John the Baptist sends two of his disciples to Jesus and asks, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And I don't know about you, but that was always puzzling to me. You know, here you have this man of conviction who's saying, this is Jesus, watch him. And now all of a sudden he's asking, are you the coming one? And this is a great example of how Uh, even with good intentions, people sometimes can be misled. John the Baptist had his own disciples and his disciples were faithful. So if you think about the Jewish system, it was always a rabbi to disciple system. And, you know, I kind of joked last week that I always would teach my my conformans or my catechumens that, you know, if you were going to really do this correctly, you'd follow me everywhere I go, you know, and we'd go to Starbucks and hang out and you'd watch all that I do, you know, not just what I say, but everything that I do. And, um, that's how disciples were. A rabbi was a teacher and he didn't just teach information, but he taught a way of living. And so, these disciples of John, they followed him, they listened to him, they watched him, they loved him. And so they had a lot of loyalty for John. So you can imagine having that that relationship with John and that love for John, that it had to be difficult when he handed over the the baton or pass the torch to Jesus to let Jesus do his thing. So if you want to take a look at John chapter 3, well, you can actually look at the bottom of the handout on page 1 where it says, The disciples of John the Baptist demonstrate some frustration and anger over Jesus getting all the attention. St. John 3.26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And then John answers in chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. So, you know, you could take a quick look at that, John chapter 3. There's a lot there in that chapter because you have the chapter on baptism. And part of what I'm doing in this study is trying to show you how across the different books of the Bible you piece information together. So you have this in Luke chapter 7 you have John the Baptist's inquiry. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? But to get the backstory, story you read in the different gospels what's going on. And so you read in John chapter 3, and you get a little bit of background. So in John chapter 3, start at verse 26 again. And my my version today is New International Version. I uh, left my New King James Bible in my other car, but um, it says here, They came to John and said to him, "'Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, "'the one you testified about, "'well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him.'" To this, John replied, "'A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. "'You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, "'but am sent ahead of him. "'The bride belongs to the bridegroom. "'The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him,' and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. So you see there, John's disciples are looking at Jesus and they're, they're upset, they're angry. They, uh, their loyalty for John looks at everybody going to Jesus and they say what's up with this? You know, our man John, he was out here when nobody was out here. He was doing all the hard work and now here comes Jesus. So, you know, they have they have some issues with Jesus. John preaches and he's telling them, look, this is what I'm all about. I am ready for Jesus to come in and now my work is complete so he 's trying to get his disciples to to see, and you know even like think about this with children you know we 're always trying to teach our children right, and you know they 're resistant or they don 't listen, and you know you get frustrated well you know you 're not alone you know john John he was getting frustrated with his with his disciples, so then what he does is starting in verse 31 and following, he then preaches a short little homily, a short little sermon to his disciples. And so it says here in verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. So, you know, he's trying to get it into context for them. The one who comes from heaven is above all He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Now there's a little language about the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see what he's doing? He's trying to get his disciples to realize that Jesus is the one they need, not John. John's the messenger. And so, you know, just in human fashion, John's disciples suffer from, you know, a form of idolatry. You know, it's, it's this very difficult tension between, you know, loyalty and, and idolatry. So, uh, so John sees it in John, in John chapter 3. He sees the struggle with his disciples. Now if you turn the page of the handout to page 2. Yes?
1: yes. I have a question. Yes? And I don't mean to take this down a tangent. But this is the only spot in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus baptizing. This is before Jesus instituted
0: baptism. What kind of baptism is he doing? Yeah, so this is... um, This is what we talked about a little bit last week. Yep. And it's, you know, the baptisms before Christ's passion are different. Um, So they're baptisms of repentance. And then Christ's cross, his passion pours into baptism what we have today. So Christ's death on the cross, his blood shed, makes then the baptism the church has a life-giving water. Okay, so they are a little different. And um if we have time we can go back to we can go to it in Acts eighteen and Acts nineteen. There's a gentleman in there that is talking about the faith and they ask him if he's been baptized and he says, I only know of a, the baptism of John. Okay, so there's a little bit, we'll look at that, but that's a great, great question. Yeah. Listen to last week's recording. <laughs> yeah, right, listen to last week's recording. Very good. <laughs> so then look on page two where it says in red, St. Matthew nine fourteen, and go to that. So see how you're kind of jumping around a little bit throughout the scriptures you're filling in the gaps to get a fuller picture. And this is to get into Lutheran systematics, this is uh scripture interpreting scripture. You know, this our scriptural principle scripture interprets scripture. So um you let the scriptures fill in the gaps and and inform the meaning. So Matthew 9, verse 14, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? So this time they go to Jesus, okay? And they are questioning Jesus so they have issues with him about the fact that they are practicing spiritual renunciation. John's disciples, right? Fasting hard, praying a lot. And to them, they look at Jesus and his disciples and they think, well, you guys are just having a party. You know, you're having a good time. And here we are, you know, we're we're giving up things, you know. So you should be, you you see what's going on in between the lines? John's disciples are coming to Jesus and lecture, you know, in a sense, lecturing to him that, you know, you guys should really be like us. We learned from John. You see? You see what's going on in between the lines? And I don't know if you've, have you ever seen this before? Like, when it hit me, I was, I, I had never seen it like this, like, until I realized this, I thought everybody just fell into line. You know, there's John. He's doing his thing. Everybody's walking like good Lutherans, you know. And then, and then they see Jesus and they're like, oh, Jesus, yes, right? And then they go, no, it wasn't like that. You know, you can see the human element in all of it. And so Jesus answered. And now remember in John 3... John referenced the bridegroom and the bride. Remember that in John 3? Now look at Matthew 9. Look at Christ's answer to these disciples. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So you see how he does that So John and Jesus are saying essentially the same thing to these disciples, the same disciples. So note how John responds there. Then John the Baptist and his disciples resurface again in Matthew 11. John is in prison and it seems as if some time had passed because of all that has taken place since Jesus left Nazareth for Galilee in Matthew 4:12. So now we get to Luke chapter seven. okay? So let's go to Luke seven. So chapter seven, you have the faith of the centurion, and then Jesus raises a widow's son. But let's look here at verse 18. So Luke 17, or Luke seven. Starting at verse 18, and I know we read this last week, but some of you ladies are here that weren't last week, so let's read it again. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Mm-hmm. So now think about this. What happens before this is you have the faith of the centurion, where Jesus heals the centurion servant. Then Jesus raises the widow of Nain. Uh, did an autocorrect on my handout and said Main, but it's Nain, widow of Nain. And so the disciples are kind of looking at all this going, hmm, what's going on? You know, I don't remember John doing that. And so they go to John and they tell John, look, this is what has happened. So he says, go to the Lord and ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you. Now notice, John sent us to you. We're not asking for ourselves. You know, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very moment, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So that was his initial response. He doesn't start talking to them, he first is like, Am I the coming one? Hey you, come here. Let me heal you. Come, come, right? And so he's doing the work. Now, in between the lines, this is like the catechumenate. Ain't you know, early Christian catechesis wasn't just about information, it was about how one lives. And when I get to my dissertation topic, and I'll talk a little bit about about it, that was a key thing for the early Christians in Alexandria. How do we live? Do the Christians live differently than the pagans, for example? Are the virtues the same or are they different? Do Do the Christians engage their vices like others do? You know, so... This is kind of an in-between-the-line, this is a comprehensive view of how Jesus works. He doesn't only give you information, he has you watch him to see the evidence. Now, in his case, what he's also doing is he's showing that the kingdom of God is being ushered in through his miracles. These are the signs and the testimonies of the coming of the Messiah, So that's what he does first. Then in verse 22, he replies to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me now there is a lot going on there for example take a look at isaiah 29 so now we're going to go to old testament Isaiah 29, verses 17 to 19. In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more... The humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So you hear that a little bit, there's that language. And um, so he's fulfilling Isaiah. You know, there's language in different places in Isaiah like that, where, you know, the deaf shall hear, the blind will receive their sight. You know, people will walk. Darkness will be dispelled. You know, and this is a great, you know, we're in the season of epiphany. And epiphany means to shine, right? A light shines. And so we are in that period of the church here where we are looking at things like this, where Christ dispels his darkness or the darkness of the world and shines his light into it. And bless you. But then what's interesting to me, bless you. <laughs> Look at verse 23. Luke seven twenty-three. It says, and blessed is the one who is not, and it literally says in Greek, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. So here's the question. Is John scandalized by Jesus? No, John's not. But his disciples are. So this is like perfect teaching. There's John. There's Jesus. They're both on the same page. John's like, hey, can you do me a favor? I'm just really curious about that guy over there could you just go and ask him for me? Is he the Savior? And so they're like, anything you say, boss. (laughs) Right? That's what they're doing. They're like, we'll do it. We're faithful. We're, We're going. And so they go like good soldiers and they go to Jesus and Jesus catches on. Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you go tell John what you see and what you hear? So all this time, The disciples think this is between John and Jesus, but it's really for them. Yes, Pat.
2: Okay, so my understanding is that John knew his reason and why he was there and what his job was while he was on earth. So he was asking his disciples to go to Jesus to help them understand. John already knew. He did. So it was his disciples
0: he was trying to it was his disciples. He was trying to help. Because here's the thing. This is how uh, false religions begin, right? It starts off with some some good, and maybe some of that some of the good teaching, but then the followers start following the wrong the wrong person, and then they start to veer off, and then it becomes something completely different. And John's going to die, and he knows it. He knows he is not getting out of that prison alive. And he is a good teacher, and he is very concerned about what's going to happen to his disciples after he's dead. What are they going to do? Are they going to go and form a sect out in the wilderness and then put up a shrine in John's honor. You know, these things have happened, right? And so, John's concerned about their salvation. He probably thinks about all of the time that he's spent teaching and pointing and showing, right? And, you, you know, in a human perspective, you'd hate for that to be lost. You Think about raising your children. You know, you spend all that time and all that energy... Raising your children. And you hope that it will be good in the end, right? And if you see them kind of going off, it, it, it's, it's a cause for worry and concern, isn't it? And so this is John. So he's trying to lead them back because they're scandalized. And that's where I think the point really lies in all of this that it's really about John's disciples because he uses the word scandalized. Blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. And you can just imagine John's disciples are probably like trying to hide their thoughts, right? I hope he doesn't doesn't really know what we're thinking, you know, or what we've been thinking. And so then, verse 24 After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Because everybody knew about John. So, you know, this is like code going on between John and Jesus. The disciples of John weren't so sure what was going on. The crowd also doesn't know what's going on. They're probably sitting there going, Wait a minute. John the Baptist was that rock-solid guy out there in the wilderness, and now he's asking if Jesus is the coming one. What's going on with John? So Jesus tells them. So let's read on. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, There is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So you see, he's telling them John is not a reed shaken by the wind. He's not the one wavering in the faith. He was a prophet, more than a prophet. He's the one, he was strong. Out of women, uh, children born of women, there is no one like John. So he's defending John to the crowd so that they don't misunderstand. So there's a lot of good teaching methods in here. Uh, something in between the lines is that a teacher isn't only about conveying information a teacher is has been entrusted with the souls of the people and so you can see a little bit of this in the pastoral ministry you know we're we're not just information bearers you know you're three pastors here but we actually have care for your souls and it's not a click in and click out kind of thing, but it's a long standing journey. And the teaching is variegated, you know, it's information, it's proclamation, but it's also example, it's life. It's, um, It's about caring for you and who you are as Christians and as people and to lead you uh, to Jesus, and uh, that you may be led to heaven. So there's a, really, there's a lot cooking in the method and the approach of of their teaching here. So let me pause. Does anybody have any comments, questions? Donna. I was just wondering, um, if the same disciples, whom
1: Jesus, 3, because in John chapter 3, you know, Jesus made it very, clear I mean, John made it very plain to them who, who the Christ was. He's mm-hmm. so the one from heaven who's sent by God, you know, so it's kind of scary that, you know, people can know and be told these things, and then the doubts and you know, the
2: skepticism arises, and so they had not only to hear John, but they had to see his life, what yeah. he did. Right. Who, who, he, who
0: he was? Who he was? Yeah. That's right. But
2: but if you go back to
1: John three, it's amazing. I mean, he told him right out, "He is the Christ." I am not the Christ. Yeah. But still, if it was the same disciples that went and asked the questions, you know, yeah, who Jesus was? Yeah. So he said, "Yeah."
0: So I mean, yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Yes. I
3: was thinking about how many times the disciples just couldn't figure out what Jesus couldn't figure out Jesus Christ so it's not totally unusual, but I guess they're
0: questioning Yeah. It's the way it, it's the way of, of human beings, right? Yeah. That's that's a great point too. You know, Jesus disciples, they weren't getting it either. And it just was a continual issue for them too, even down to well, even down to Christ's resurrection and they're hiding in a locked room and they're fearful that they're next, you know I mean this is, the encouragement is that, you know, Jesus knows us and, and he knows what we're capable of and what we're not capable of And he knows our weaknesses and he knows our struggles and he loves us. So he's merciful. He cares for us in the midst of it all. And I think I mentioned this last week, but if you go back to Matthew chapter nine, Jesus is, he's the merciful one. And Matthew, so Matthew was a tax collector. So you have this in Matthew chapter 9, you have this this ordering of the the chapter. And you have Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. And all these Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests are standing along the back wall, you know, grumbling because Jesus did what he did. And it's then after that, that Matthew records his calling and his com- his call to follow Jesus. It's after the healing of the paralytic. I think that's significant. He puts it there for a reason. You know, I, I did mention this last week because I remember saying, if we were to record our own gospel and our own and we had our own conversion, we'd probably put it at the the beginning. We'd tell the story of how we were converted and now here everything happens after. But he waits until chapter 9 to give his conversion. And then at the end of his conversion in verse 12, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And so I think the fact that that statement is put in with the call of Matthew is significant to the point that I think that's the point of the gospel. Mercy, always mercy. And then, right after Jesus saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then comes John's disciples walking up, demanding sacrifice. You see? That's the point. Jesus is about mercy, but the worldly way is about sacrifice. And so, we're learning a lot of stuff here about Jesus and John's disciples and the way of the church. Our lives are paved with the mercy of Christ. All right, any other questions or comments? Yes. Can you, uh, I'm lingering on that question, how does the Christian
4: purpose of duty come from mercy? Uh, because you asked that last week. And I think you just answered it now. But I think I need a little more clarity on what like, modern-day sacrifice might look like for Christian. Mm. Yeah.
0: Modern-day sacrifice.
4: Yeah, I mean,
0: like what? like, yeah, what would that look like? What is mo- so what does modern-day sacrifice look like for the Christian in terms of, like, um, what we need to sacrifice to live holy lives kind of thing?
2: Right.
4: Yeah. But are
3: there other? What are other examples?
0: Yeah, so you know when you think about uh, the Christian life, um, there is uh, there's there's this sense of as you see this in Paul's letters, and I'll get into this more as we go to the next uh, kind of topic for our study, but in the Christian life there is this constant theme in Paul's letters of giving of the self and you know here's what i here's what i would like to do but here's what i need to do um you see it like in galatians 6 um bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of christ so like modern day sacrifice i think is we're our struggle is we're really busy and we have more things on our calendar than we have time and we're always in a hurry. And we're trying to do the right things, right? You're taking your kids to this and you're going to that. You need time with your spouse and you need to do this and you need to do that. And for us, what's really hard is if there's somebody in need and we have to stop all that, right? That, in a sense, is really hard that's a form of Christian sacrifice. Like I've mentioned before in uh, Philippians chapter two, um, there is this word for comfort. If there's any comfort of love, the word for comfort, that word for comfort means to be as physically close to someone who is suffering as is possible. So that means stopping what you're doing and looking at the person in need and saying I know I've got a lot going on but this person really needs the mercies of Christ and so I need to spend a little time with this person. Um, So that's one thing. You can also look at it in a broader perspective of the church and stewardship. um, What makes a church go? But you know, and I know you've heard this before, but, you know, tithing, uh, it opens the door to so many things. If you don't have tithing, then doors start to close. They may be small doors at first. They may seem like insignificant doors that don't really matter. But then the doors that close get bigger. And then the next thing you know is the church because stewardship has, has weakened, then the church is no longer able to extend in mercy in the ways that it needs to. So, you know, like, so tithing is a sacrifice because especially with everything, you know, I was just reading an article about how insurance rates are going to go up again because of everything that's happened in the last two years. And you're like, oh no, not again, <laughs> you know. Uh, so. It, it becomes a downward slope and it is a sacrifice to be able to tithe, uh, to give your time, to slow down, to stop. Um, it's, uh, in a sense, it's a sacrifice to slow down, to allow the church's rhythm to order your life as opposed to the world's rhythm because the world's rhythm is like this, and it's, imp- it's filled with everything that's important, isn't it? And so we often will push aside the spiritual devotion, you know, the time with Christ to slow down and to muse upon the crucifix and to pray and to meditate. So, you know, these are normal, modern day versions of sacrifice that uh, will reap great benefits um, and you will, you learn differently. I think that's part of it. Like we learn different, sacrifice is painful sometimes and it's hard, but we learn different things like wisdom. I think I've mentioned this before, but it just is something that just is always revolving in my mind. The word for wisdom, as you may remember, in Hebrew is hakma which is the word that's used for the artisans and the skilled craftsmen that build the temple and that make the tapestries and the curtains. It, though it's the so Hakma are the the wood carvers that go in and carve the beautiful pictures in the wood walls of the temple. And so those are the wise Well, what is significant about that kind of wisdom? It's not that you're just an artist, only an artist is wise, though artists probably like that, think about that that way. But to be wise in the Hebrew way is to bring beauty and meaning into the lives of other people. And so if you think about that, you know, Proverbs is, the book of Proverbs is always talking about wisdom, a life of wisdom, right? An understanding of wisdom. So we sacrifice our, ourselves and maybe some of the things that we desire, and it's painful, and when we're going through it, we're wondering, what am I doing? This is just a little bit too much. I would rather get back to the way things were. But you learn things you would never learn, and you start to look around and you see the world differently and that is the light of Christ beaming into your life where you see you look into the face of other people and you slow down and you pray and there is a peace and a tranquility and a joy that comes through sacrifice that you may not find otherwise.
1: It's like we sacrifice yet we receive. And we receive and measure well beyond the sacrifice that we make. Yeah. You know, what we receive from Christ in that
3: process.
0: It's it is true.
3: But I don't always remember that.
0: No, it's it's hard. So it's, it's
2: like, oh yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Holly.
2: Uh, so on the flip side, then,
3: um, um, you know, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So modern day, what's he, what's he talking here? Like all the things, you know, spending time with other people. I see that as merciful. Yeah. Tithing, obviously, is kind of sacrifice.
0: It feels like it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, just like what he's talking about, you know, because doesn't, doesn't this
3: come from Samuel? Is there a mercy in that sacrifice?
0: Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to look that up.
3: Uh, just like, how do we go about not, not being fair or, you know, sacrificing in ways that aren't actually showing mercy?
0: So say that one more time. Like,
3: what, what is the modern day version of what Jesus is talking about? about I desire sacrifice and not, I mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice.
0: So what is that? What is
3: mercy telling us not to do?
0: What is mercy telling us not to do? Uh, yeah, I
3: like think when he says, you know, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah. You know, you don't need to whitewash your tombs.
0: Yeah. I
3: feel like that's a fair signal, you know, like. Yeah. Or even maybe liberal. He's going to be talking about the liberal sacrifices because he,
1: it's going to be like the one sacrifice? I, I think Luther's a good answer to that. Okay. Because Luther, living the monastic life, you know, was really hard on himself. He was like it was. a monk, right? Yeah. And once he realizes that the gospel sets you free in Christian liberty, in service to your neighbor, then all of a sudden you wind up with him preaching about vocation and talking about the mom changing diapers in the middle of the night, you know. That is service to the Lord. And so, in that sense, you're talking about sacrifice not in beating yourself in a pharisaical way that you've got to, to whip yourself to, you know, a bloody pulp in order to prove something to God. Instead, your sacrifice is and giving to others and into your family, and that's mm-hmm. service to the Lord. Mm-hmm. I think that's the Luther just gives us a really good contrast.
0: That's true. That's a very good point. Um, go to Second Corinthians ten, because the Greek is striking. Okay, so here's here's part of the way I look at it, the the mercy part. So the trouble with the Pharisaical view of of sacrifice is it, it has a very judgmental kind of thing where you know I have the standard, I have the information, I'm the example, live like me or else. You know, it's kind of a finger pointing kind of thing. Well, the problem with Pharisaical judgment is no one will remain alive. (laughs) Right? It will kill everybody. And so it changes in a comprehensive big picture kind of way. Sacrifice instead of mercy will change the climate and the air that everybody breathes and it will be toxic. But where mercy is the air that you breathe, then life becomes, can, not perfectly because we're living in a sinful world, but, the, but life can become sort of like the Garden of Eden. Freedom, joy, peace, calm, love. You see? And Paul mentions it a little bit in 2 Corinthians 10.1. 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, urge you through the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, what's insightful about this is that word meekness is used for Moses in in the uh, book of Numbers. It says that Moses was the meekest one on earth. And then Jesus himself is also meek and lowly and gentle in heart. Now, Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to be to, to notice meekness and gentleness. Now, what's striking about this um, gentleness is epi And what that literally means, literally means, to give a person a different answer than they deserve. Isn't that interesting? Give someone something different than what they deserve. So instead of judgment, you give them gentleness and kindness. And of course, teaching and truth go along with that, right? I mean, that's what... If you look at the, the account that we've been looking at with John the Baptist and his disciples, they didn't. neither one of them pounded them over the head, right? And said, you guys are idiots. <laughs> Instead, they gently taught them. They gave them something different than they deserved. And this word comes up in different places in Paul's letters. And that's the church's life. And so... Part of this mercy is, and I don't know, Holly, if I'm answering your question, but it just kind of like sparked sparked some other things here that, you know, mercy, Christ's mercy looks like this, that you you get baptized and you come back into the Garden of Eden. And now, because remember, before Adam and Eve sinned, before they sinned they could eat from the tree of life all day long but they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil once they fell into sin they couldn't eat from the tree of life so they had to leave the garden of Eden now Christ through his cross has given us the ability to enter the, the garden of Eden again and now we eat from the tree of life which is the Eucharist and the Garden of Eden is, that's the life we live. So you go into the church and it's like the Garden of Eden. And in fact, um, uh, Basel the Great uh, wrote a series of sermons on this very topic about how you know, the human condition distorts the, the life that, that we were initially given, but now through the grace of Christ... And through his tree on the cross, now we, we go back in. And that's, I think, that's kind of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's saying, he's saying, what I come to give you is so incredibly different than what you're used to.
1: Does- you know, the difference between sort of this pharisaical sacrifice versus like a merciful sacrifice also have to do with our intent. If we're, if we're giving of our time and our money um, to our neighbors and to our church because we believe that that's going to, you know, save us or, or, or earn us our way to heaven, obviously that's the wrong way, the, the wrong motivation for doing it. but if we're doing it because that's what God you know, commands us to do and, and we're doing out of love for our neighbors, um, you know, just the intent behind it,
0: I guess. Yeah, it's the intent behind it. It's kind of like, so what do you, when you think about these sacrifices or when you think about the life, what are you looking at, you know? Are you looking at yourself and you're, you're kind of boosting yourself up and saying, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm pretty dutiful. Or are you looking at something else? Like, <clears throat> I want I want to live in the Garden of Eden. Jesus has given me the Garden of Eden to come back into. My church is like a little foretaste of the Garden of Eden. This is where I want to live. This is what I want it to be. You know, Jesus has paved the way. And so... You know, it's it's kind of like: Are you looking into the face of Jesus and all that he all that he brings and all that he produces, or are we still looking into our own mirror and gazing upon our own image? You know, so it really gets back to that: Is it idolatry or is it true worship? Yeah.
4: Um, you know, when you said what Jesus offers us is something so totally different, you know, and um, so tying it together, I think like. When we look at the world, and particularly like even particularly our city or our country, it, it's like there's so much emphasis on um, it, there's so much ambition, there's so much success, there's so much drive. We must achieve. It's like achievement is the thing. Christians, yeah. I think, and probably to my shame, like I think I I came from like a really process, a strong version of this, where it was like. Um, there was just the Christianized version of that or mm-hmm. Christian excellence. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying excellence is always a bad thing, but but there's the way it's interpreted as as achievement. So mm-hmm. and the path to that is often like it often is filled with good things. Like mm-hmm. Bible study and learning and prayer and, and mercy to your to people you love. But but it's a path of achievement. It's mm-hmm. it's a Christianized version of climbing the ladder. Yeah. You know, and I think like for me, I feel like I was really, really absorbed in that, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. and had some success, you know, success in that. Yeah. Um, and then I think God just like you know smashed that ladder for me and uh-huh. really humbled me, and 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 coming to St. John was you know part of that process of realizing like. I was just doing the same exact thing the world was doing in like a Christianese version.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and,
4: yeah. And like, it, yeah. So, so, so there was a long time where I was like, I'm not going to read my Bible during the, uh, every day. You know, like, uh-huh. I'm not doing that. Uh-huh. So it, but it was almost like I had to take it out and be like, it's not about me reading my Bible every single day and praying because that makes me an elite Christian. <laughs>
0: that's <sort> of like, <laughs> to my shame, like, I
4: feel like I was looking an elite Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, and and at St. John, there you know, not just at St. John, but in the real gospel, it's not just like, well God saved you by faith and then you get on this ladder of achievement. It's like God saved you by faith and then God moves you gently along by faith as you you know are seeking after him but um, you know the, the intent is like mercy. Yeah. It's like it's it's like when you say it's like the air you breathe. It's like it's really hard to differentiate sometimes because on the outside it can look really similar, but it's like you're breathing an entirely different air. Yeah. When it's just all about God's um, God doing this work for you versus you achieving.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's that gentle air, right? That Second Corinthians 10.1, It's that gentle, merciful Christ air. You know, and that's what we breathe, and I think it's done very well here at St. John. And um, so, what a blessing it is to think about how many people in the world never experience it. Think about how many Christians in the world never experience this kind of thing. And so, we are blessed. Yeah. Yes.
2: I'm um, I, I, absorbing all of this. I think a lot about living in. This culture, which is very much like a control freak culture, mm-hmm. and being someone who's like, is a control freak. <laughs> but it's, it's like I'm watching this going to its logical conclusion to be a control freak. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew it in myself, but then watching the culture just devolve. Into the ultimate end is just total. I must
0: be God. Yeah. And and uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just uh, <laughs> uh,
2: it's it's the amount of rest. I think mean, mercy is rest, resting in Christ.
0: Yeah. Not, I'm going to do good things today.
2: Yeah check in my my mind it's resting in Christ and I think of so often like in physical therapy when I would be like always like helping take the load off the therapist (laughs) instead of just let them do what they're doing it and that they want me to do something resistant (laughs) it's it's allowing Christ to do the movement and I'm just kind of moving into the moving into that power it's more effortless.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's really loving other yeah. people. Yeah. Desiring the best for them. And it's so peaceful and I'm sorry.
0: No, it's okay. It's peaceful.
2: Uh, it's not a struggle.
0: Yeah. No, that's I mean, right.
2: I don't know what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. That's very good.
2: I love you, again.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. That's very good. Yeah. there's a red there. Well, we, we could keep going, but, um, but we should break for, for now. And we'll, uh, we'll start back up next week. And uh, let's close with the uh, collect and then the benediction. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon ourselves the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good day. Blessings.